Well, thanks for coming on the show. I I can't thank you enough. Um, I don't know if I, we we've barely talked, but I don't know if you've made the connection of how I heard about you. Did did um, did Richard tell you about that? No. Okay. So Richard Maxwell's my uncle. You you may know him. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah, I know him pretty well. Pretty Good well. Good guy. Yeah, he is. He's uh, yeah, he's my mom's. Uh, he's my mom's brother, and um, my my mom read your book. And when back a couple months ago, when I was first getting this podcast off the ground, she was like, "You have to interview this Denzel guy." And I was like, "Okay, that, that's cool." And then she sent me your book, and I read your book, and it was amazing. And um, and then as you know, this podcast has grown. I figured out how to do things remotely, and uh, here we are. So welcome aboard. Oh, awesome. Yeah, Richard. Richard is quite a guy. I mean, that's uh, one of those unsung heroes. That um, you know, he's been there, done that. You, 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 we went fishing one time. And he goes, "Oh my gosh, the last time I was here in this body of water, it was to get a body." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's it's people have no idea, you know, what police officers see on a daily basis. And for him as a homicide detective, he just, you know, he saw the absolute worst yeah. of human nature and how that didn't scar him, you know, to where, you know, he's, he's a great guy, you know, fun to be around and all that. And, um, you know, but you know that he bears some scars that are pretty tough. Absolutely. And he's one of the nicest pretty human pretty, beings yeah. on the face of the planet. Oh. And yeah, just yeah. almost a little soft spoken at times. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and then you see the, you know, the tattoos and the leather from the, the biker stuff. And you're like, all right, he's pretty tough too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, he's the founder of one of the, uh, the second largest law enforcement motorcycle club in the United States. And um, it's, it's, uh, you know they they founded it right down there in outlaw country mm -hmm. and you know developed a relationship a respectful relationship with all the outlaws and um you know it is what it is he's he is yeah he and the other founders are some pretty tough hombres yeah were and are you know so um uh, nothing but respect for them and the fact that they were able to, to create something out of nothing that has grown to a point where, you know, 1400 members and chapters and, you know, 47 chapters and all the way across the United States. And, uh, it's pretty, pretty incredible, you know, and a great bunch of people to be around. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, they're law enforcement heavy and, uh, you know, I mean, they're weighted towards some clubs, you know, um, that are law enforcement actually have, um, maybe a 50, 50 ratio or less as far as active law enforcement in our club is, is the opposite. And it's pretty much, um, all law enforcement with 
you know, a, a good number. We, we have a, a percentage of, of veterans that had law enforcement backgrounds and, as well. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things, if you like motorcycles, you like having fun and you like to share it. And it's kind of uh, one of those things where you can share it with people that have a, a similar background life experiences and things like that so it makes it even more fun absolutely because you can relate yeah so tell tell me a little bit about so one thing about your book that i was having a tough time with was hopefully i was hoping you could clear this up for me you uh, there should be a beer company somewhere out there to get you to run their marketing campaign as the most interesting man in the world (laughs) Um, because (laughs) you've literally done uh, all of these amazing like any one of these things that you've done to the highest level like you have one person would call one of those things of uh, uh, like a, a a life well lived you've got like seven of them <laughs> so the one thing i was having a tough time with is your timeline so what was your like graduating high school going into college like were you a doctor first were you a police officer first how did that kind of all uh, come about um i was i was you know in college and um you know i i my 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 background was going to be psychology and i in 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 a biology chemistry background i was going to go into dental school and i had the opportunity to join a police department part-time go through the training um which allowed me then to uh, pay for school oh excellent and so then i went to dental school and i was the only person at washington university school of dental medicine that was actually working outside of uh, school. You know, I mean, it was, uh, there were a few people that did some weekend jobs and things like that, but to actually um, be working um, for a short time, uh, my, my first and second years uh, with police departments was, um, it, it, you know, it helped, helped pay for things, but it was also so stressful, you know, oh, the absolutely. amount of, the, you know the amount of time that you, that's required for a professional graduate school <clears throat> is um, unbelievable. So I had a lot of sleepless time, and um, you know I left there and did a one-year um, internship, uh, advanced clinical rotations program in the Navy, and was done with law enforcement. Um, and then I, you know, I did, I served in the Navy, uh, served on the uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt. I was a plank owner on her. Nice. And uh, went through her first three years and her first uh, Mediterranean cruise and uh, got out and then um, did my residency at the University of Virginia and um, then started in private practice and dentistry and, and worked at the University of St. Louis University and, um, you know, then American International School of Medicine for a medical degree and rotated here in uh, St. Louis. And, um, and the whole time I was maintaining a private practice in dentistry that was geared towards it's, it's oral medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm see, I was seeing patients that were, um, so critically ill medically that, uh, they, they, they would not make a good candidate as a patient in a normal dental setting. And so they're best, you know, served in a hospital. Or, uh, you know, they would require sedation, IV sedation, general anesthesia. Um, and they were so brittle, uh, whether they were diabetic or cancer patients or um, HIV uh, patients. And I ended up 
in St. Louis at the time. I was about the only person who was seeing him, but one of the only people that had the advanced medical training. And um, so before long, I had about 2,000 HIV patients from all around this part of the country. Holy smokes. And um, so I did, you know, lots and lots of surgery and lots and lots of dentistry and had a good time. And in 93, um, I, a friend of mine, uh, my, the, the guy's best man at my wedding, Joe Palfrey, um, army trained sniper, uh, just a great guy. I'm just a, just a, you know, super duper, uh, first a chemical engineer. And then he, he worked for the pipe fitters union in Southern Illinois. And he and I did everything together. We rode motorcycles, we, um, martial arts, uh, and we thought, you know what? wouldn't it be neat to be police officers, you know? <laughs> and so we contacted um, Mike Donovan, who's the chief of the Lebanon police department. And he agreed to sign us on. We went to the Academy and uh, uh, from there, just worked uh, part-time um, Thursday nights, Fridays, Saturdays, sometimes Sundays, and uh, just worked the, worked the night shift uh, in, in town. And, um, did that for a number of years and I uh, worked there in St. Uh, Clair County and um, East Carondelet, Illinois. And after 23 years of that, I finally, uh, the ALS caught up with me and I mm-hmm. couldn't fake running or <clears throat> helping out. And I didn't want to be a, you know, a detriment or at least, you know, an anchor on somebody and, 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 and a handicap. So yeah. uh, to another officer and, and endanger them. So in 2016, I retired. Okay. Awesome. Let's let's. That's a lot to chew on. Let me. I have a couple questions that popped up. By the way, okay. um, if you hear a second voice on the line, I do a terrible job of this, but I need to introduce uh, my producer, uh, Joe Trenshaw, who's also on the line here. Uh, Hi, Joe. Nice to meet you, Doctor Denzel. <laughs> so yeah, I was I, as soon like as you were rolling, and I, I was thinking, I was like, I didn't tell him that Joe was here too. Yeah. So <laughs> if you heard a second voice, it wasn't a ghost. You weren't hearing things. So. <laughs> Okay, well, it's good to have a Joe around. I, I've got my Joe around all the time. Yeah, we we <laughs> nice. need him around here, otherwise the show wouldn't happen. So, um, okay. So uh, you said you were you had at one point two thousand HIV patients. Was there an again this this is a little bit before my time, but was there a a stigma around that time where doctors and dentists weren't oh, willing to work on horrible. HIV patients? It was it was actually horrible in medicine and dentistry. There are people who are so afraid. Um, and, uh, there was a case where Kimberly Bregalis was the first, uh, HIV patient that contracted it from the healthcare provider. Oh, wow. Hmm. And, um, and that was a Florida dentist and, um, it, it, there were, yeah, there was a tremendous stigma. Everybody was afraid and without getting into the details of that case, it, it looked like he possibly you know could have done that intentionally but uh the 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 outshoot of that was that that the public and healthcare providers themselves were just afraid and so when i moved to st louis um uh it was you know i was giving lectures to other dentists and physicians on the common uh, dental maladies that are occurring with hiv patients uh the opportunistic infections how to handle it and there was just a reluctance mm-hmm. for people to even want to know about it. Oh, I'll just send them to you mm-hmm. and without <laughs> advertising, without, 
uh, ever advertising. Uh, we just, the practices grew that way. I, I was involved with several of the infectious disease docs here in St. Louis, and they were all just super welcoming. They said, oh, we've, we've got somebody who can see these patients. And within probably six months of moving to St. Louis, I was, I was, I was booked and so busy all the time. Word got around. Um, yeah. And we were doing, you know, I mean, we were uh, using all the universal precautions, the autoclaving and the, and the sterilization that we were using at the hospital. Mm-hmm. We just incorporated that into the dental practice and yeah. we thought, well, you know, everybody that's, you know, worried about this, um, they shouldn't be. You know, if you're if you're actually practicing uh, sterilization and and universal precautions, that shouldn't be a a, a a hindrance to seeing any patients, but it remains so for for a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. It what? finally, you know, it's it's now I think people realize they're they're seeing patients and uh, not even knowing that they are. You know, yeah. and there's other things that they got to worry about more, like hepatitis C, and you know, so right. <clears throat> what made you different? What made what now? What made you different from a lot of the other docs and dentists that weren't willing to take HIV patients back then? Oh, um, <clears throat> I, I, you know, just an understanding of the science, uh, 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 a willingness to 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 uh, see people that I'd known. Mm-hmm. Um, I had uh, several friends that were in, in the gay community, and um, it, it, you know, I. I it, it was hitting close to home. I was seeing people that I knew mm-hmm. that were getting sick and, and passing. And uh, this is before any of the meds. This is, I mean, before AZT, this is, it, you know, you had a 18 to 24 month lifespan yeah. when you were first infected. And it was, uh, it was horrible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just, everybody deserves to be cared for, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I mean, so maybe it was that personal, you know, seeing it up close early on that, <clears throat> just you know made it uh something i wasn't i was not gonna not see someone i yeah. just couldn't do that absolutely that's yeah so you had a heart for your same patients with, same with all the other infectious disease docs that were you know up up to their elbows in in it you know that were working um without knowing i mean everybody was trying to figure out what caused it and and and, and what we you know how to prevent it and then how to treat it and uh, so there were there were a lot of other people that were you know in there. I just happened to be one of the few early on here in the St. Louis area. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the coasts were a little farther advanced, but they had um, they you know they had a, a larger patient population there at the time, you know, and so um, <clears throat> we just caught up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, Joe. You got anything so far? I'm I'm just here listening. This is a, an incredible <laughs> story. <laughs> Cool. So, uh, yeah, I didn't give Joe your book, so he's he's at a deficit right now. So I'll probably do most oh, of the question okay. asking. But um, well, people people ask, they'll go, well, how did you do this, or how how could you have done X, Y, or Z? Or you know, I've had people that were in in incredulous, you know, like, oh, he can't do this, impossible. And it's like, well, you know, I, I was lucky. I had a dad that was encouraging, mm-hmm. uh, very strict, old world disciplinarian type. Um, but, but at the same time, you know, he taught us how to critically think and, you know, how to have that internal dialogue within ourselves. Um, you, there's only so many major decisions a human being ever makes. 
especially mm-hmm. here in the freedom of America. Mm-hmm. You know, who do you serve with your life? How, who, 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 are you, who are you going to spend it with? What are you going to do with it? You know, what are your goals? And then every time you make, you know, you make those major decisions, you also got minor decisions that occur every single day. Mm-hmm. Do I hang around with losers? Oh, well, that's you a big know, one. show me your friends. Yeah. I'll show you your future. Yeah. Do that's I a smoke big one dope? Right there. You know, yeah, should I take these drugs? Well, I might not do as well in school then, and then I can't get to the big goal. Yeah. You know, so we, I had those dialogues kind of programmed. My, you know, my brothers are the same way. I've got one that's a lawyer and the other one's a physician. And, you know, we, we would have those dialogues in our own heads. We actually talked about it before. Mm-hmm. Do you ever ask yourself the questions that daddy, uh, say, you know, and it's, it's, it, if you do that, if you teach a kid how to think, about four years, 10 mm-hmm. years, 20 years, where do you want to be? How are you going to then get there? Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier in their lives than, you know, muddling through and then, and then realizing, Oh, I haven't made any plans. And so I'm still here stuck, you know, in the starting blocks. Yeah. absolutely. And, and that's the big difference. I think is that <clears throat> some people don't think they can. And instead of thinking about, well, how can I get that? You know, it's like I, we weren't born rich, but I wanted to fly planes. I knew World War II pilots. Yeah. People that, that I grew up with that were, you know, former pilots back in the 40s. Now it's in the 60s and 70s when I was a kid. I, mm-hmm. I want to be like, I want to fly a plane like that. Yeah. You know, you mm-hmm. figure out a way. And then you, you know? did. I, yeah, I had guys that were um, martial artists and boxers. My, I had an uncle, Galen Stone, who, you know, fought the European heavyweight champion. I wanted to learn how to, I wanted to learn how to, you know, defend myself. My dad had certain goals before he would say, you're a man, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to grow up. He's well, you know, you might've hit that age, but can you speak <laughs> a second language? Can you use a map, you know, without this fancy technology? Can yeah. you um, ride a motorcycle as a life-saving tool? Maybe that might be the only means of getting away from the tsunami wave that's coming and you mm-hmm. see one sitting there but you don't know how to ride it how about a plane can you fly a plane can you defend your principles mm-hmm. with valid facts with reasoning with you know and if necessary can you defend your principles with your hands yeah and well, I think I think on that I think on that one up until you said can you defend your principles with facts I think I was like one for nine so <laughs> I got some work to do. <laughs> well, I, mean, you know, I, I don't judge anybody. You know, but, I'm but, glad. You know, I mean, I've got I I just I mean this is this is the way I do things. It's not how everybody should or mm-hmm. or um you know what's right for other people. It's just, for me, this is what works. Well, and Dr. Denzel, I mean, this is why I like to talk to people like you is because if, you know, I can have, if I can share experiences with somebody who's further down the road for me, who's done uh, things, leaps and bounds that uh, above things that I thought I was capable of doing, you know, I think I'll become a better person for having those conversations. So that's, that's one of the yeah, main absolutely. reasons why I'm doing this. Yeah. You can learn something from old people. like you. <laughs> Believe it or not, <laughs> believe it or not. Or, yeah. You know, yeah. And I learn a lot from the younger guys all the time. Yeah. You know, it's like I try to, I I thought I was going to get through life and not have to worry about these computers and stuff. Yeah. But, um, yeah. You almost got a lesson in Zoom tonight, but we didn't have to go there. So, (laughs) yeah. I will. I I loaded the app up and uh, that was as far as I got. It's a good start. It's a good Um, start. 
oh, it, oh they, this stuff is is so much. I mean, it's just unreal. I mean, yeah. when I started with computers, basic Fortran, uh, Cobalt language, oh, yeah. cards that you had to punch in a mainframe. And now, now, it's, now it's, you're speaking my language. <laughs> yeah, that that. And that was the scary stuff for me. The tech, I just, I, you know, I laughed. I said, "We got an IT guy at the office for a reason." <laughs> and I have a Joe for a reason. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. so a, a line from your book, chapter thirty-two, from your random thoughts. Um, you're pretty big into the whole uh, personal responsibility thing. There's a quote in here. Uh, we have to know our right to life doesn't come from a government. With rights come responsibilities, and each individual is responsible for maintaining their own rights. So can you kind of talk a little bit for a sec about, like, you know, I, one thing that just bugs bugs the hell out of me is when um, people want to talk about their rights before they talk about their responsibilities. And granted, our rights are incredibly important. But Okay, well, um, um, go ahead. where do your rights come from? Uh my personal belief is that our rights come from God, not government. That's my personal belief. Exactly. So exactly, the founding fathers wrote that specifically in there because they didn't. They wanted you to know that they're inalienable. They come from the creator. They come from something other than other people, from right. man, mm-hmm. from man yeah. government. And if you understand that, you know that you have then responsibilities to maintain those rights because you will have people that want to take them away. Mm-hmm. They've, they've wanted to take them away since we started this nation. They've done things like, well, you know, you, that gets into a whole bit of what's going on <laughs> with the progressive movement that's gone on for the last hundred years. Yeah. Started with Wilson, uh, you know, Woodrow Wilson on, you've got people that mm-hmm. truly want to alienate us from those rights yeah. You can look at, at, the, at the naked communist, and when it was included in the Library of Congress, uh, 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 the uh, congressional record back in the early 60s, I think about 63, they, they, they said what they were going to do. The enemies of freedom have, have written it all out. Mm-hmm. If you look at Saul Alinsky's book, you look at any Rules of that for stuff, radicals. Rules for Radicals, yep. they will show you, this is what we're going to do. Yep. We're going to get God out of the picture. You know, and then we can start and we'll peel them away. We're going to dumb down Absolutely. every kid with an educational system that that throws in, um, you know, the latest thing was the was the, the crazy math, you know, mm-hmm. uh, um, and I'm, I'm drawing a blank on what they, what they called this new common core, I believe um, is what they're common referring. core. Yep. And, 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 and that all I did is dumb down and slow down people in the ability to to learn, mm. you know, and if I can take your history and take it away from you, I yeah. can guarantee you won't have a future. Statues being torn down, museums being burned, Portland's mm-hmm. on fire. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all, that's all the result of a hundred year march towards separating us from the founding principles of this nation. Yep. You know, a lot of people don't, don't get that. They don't get, um, well, it's uh, ask me a specific question. Yeah, you know whether it's uh, the 1619 project. You know, oh, the God. stuff that they're doing today oh. to again yep. to say that this country was founded in hatred and in slavery. It just it it goes against reality. Yeah, and and 
they want you to not believe your lying sure. eyes. Just believe our narrative. Yeah, and if and you want, if you want to go and research that for yourself, if you're turning in, go and do a little bit of research on Nicole Hannah Jones, who is the founder of the 1619 Project. Um, yeah. And just just take a look at what her motives and political ide- ideologies and stuff like that. Uh, it's not. It, it, it's pure Marxism. It is. It is. Same. Yeah. And again, I've been incredibly hard on. I've been very honest and about the the Black Lives Matter movement. I I say that the Black Lives Matter as a statement is correct, but the the movement itself and the organization as, itself, which turns out that it's a pretty profitable little. Uh, uh, merchandise company now it's you know they're, right. they're not doing this stuff it, for yeah, free it's made a lot of money for yes, some people for sure it's been funded by people that hate this nation yeah absolutely and they don't want to believe that and, and they want and they want to continue to push the victimization mindset that oh woe is me i can't do it without somebody else's help yeah absolutely well and, we're, we're getting a little off in the weeds right now let's bring it back oh, a little bit okay. <laughs> I love it. Okay. We could we could totally go down that rabbit hole. So, um, and and then another quote on that topic in your book, George Washington once said, "All government is evil, necessary, and should ke- be kept small, but evil." Um, I don't see a whole lot of uh, small government these days. What say you? No. Oh no, not at all. I mean, we've got a deep state that's that's obvious to anybody that's been paying attention that has gone beyond what the mainstream media is feeding. And I'm not talking conspiracy theories. I just, I mean, the basic facts, whether you want to look at people that are above the law, like Hillary, that could delete subpoenaed emails, that could delete and bleach bit and take a hammer to a device they're supposed to turn in Hmm. there. And and, and there's no prosecution. You got, you got a uh, Hunter Biden who, who, uh, you know, uh, attorney general Barson, they're not going to look at. Mm -hmm. And yet he said, you know, well, maybe it's my my they I got this job because of my dad. Yeah. In other words, I'm selling influence. You know, and you've got you've got the dad, the president elect, saying, "Well, I'm going to uh, withhold 1.5 billion dollars in foreign aid unless they fire a prosecutor who's investigating my son." Yeah. And I'm going to leave this country in six hours. Give me and the, and the, the guy said it. I mean, none of this is know, none of this is not conspiracy stuff. I mean, there there reco- there's phone recordings, there's and recordings, all that stuff. yeah, there's yeah, there's um, recordings, and yeah. so we have people that uh, there were 65 votes to repeal and replace Obamacare mm-hmm. in the which Senate was just be prior to uh, President Trump. Oh, I see. Being okay, elected. yeah. So there were 65 votes. They said, yes, yes, yes. Repeal it, repeal it, repeal it. Mm-hmm. And when they finally had the power to do it, they didn't. They didn't. Yeah. And it was a handful I had lots of, of questions. I had a lot of questions and about that, that, that one. And that lets you know that there's a deep state. There are people that, you know, are unelected that are pushing the, pushing the agenda. Yeah. And there are people that are elected that are also on board with that power. It's, yeah. it's, it's a power thing, you know, yeah. and, um, on both parties, mm-hmm. we've got a $27 trillion national debt. And I think that some economists were saying, you know, by the time you get about $25 trillion, it's unsustainable. We're mm-hmm. at 27 Yeah. Mm-hmm. And nobody's talking about that. Yeah. And you have people like Cloward and Piven that, is, that have written about pushing this economy into a hold to breaking this country and to do it economically. You, incre- you increase entitlements. You promise things to people. They're, they're talking about $200 trillion in unfunded 
mandated spending. Yeah. How are I they think... going to, I mean, you know, you know, they're promising the world to people and they're all buying right. into it. But yeah. free, there's nothing free. Like, 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 you know, student loans. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, just that one alone. You know, there's a lot that they're promising. That, yeah. So as they do that, they right shut now, down I the think. economy. Yeah, student student yeah, yeah. loan debt just recently overtook auto loan debt as the or auto loan or credit card debt. I there think it, was it is card. now officially the number two yeah. Yeah. personal debt beside behind mortgage now. Um, yeah. but, mm-hmm. And one and I, I don't want to get too far into this, but the one thing that you have to think about too is like you know twenty seven trillion in debt. Anytime I work in, I have a banking background. Anytime there's debt, there's interest. Where's the interest going? So um, uh-huh. <laughs> I don't want to get down yeah, that rabbit getting, hole right now. <laughs> And exactly. especially if you shut the economy down yeah. and shut businesses down that you normally would tax yeah. and and individuals aren't, aren't, aren't earning this year because, again, th- their jobs are closing up. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Uh, there's a there's a there's a restaurant in my home. So my, a little bit of background on me, Denzel. I live in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan right now. Um, and okay. uh, I'm originally from Gaylord, which is about three hours north. It's a, a little small town just about an hour south of the Mackinac Bridge. Um, and there's a restaurant there called Iron Pig, and I like to shout them out anytime I get a chance to, oh, yeah. because they, they they're they're there. very good. And um, they have uh, Gretchen Whitmer has been one of the absolute worst human beings uh, when it came to all of these lockdowns. And um, she recently took down uh, indoor dining again at the beginning of December. It won't let up until uh, mid January now. And there have been a handful of restaurants that have just basically flipped her the bird and said, you know what, we're staying open. Yep. Um, and because she's running everything through the health department, they're going in and pulling liquor licenses for these businesses. So um, so they have a big legal mess on their hands, but I like to give them a shout out anytime I get on the show. If you're in the Gaylord area, you want to go out to eat, and you're not afraid of the Rona, you know, go uh, <laughs> go check them out. They're, they're good people. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, we've seen a, a crazy wave of uh, of shutdowns lately, and um, but as your background with law enforcement, can you imagine being on the street right now, having to go into these businesses per your your police chief or per your mayor and saying, "Hey, you guys got to close your door." Like, how would you feel as a as a cop doing that right now? Especially because it's hurting friends. Because I love mm. eating in restaurants. I right. love to cook and I love to eat. Yeah, and. Uh, I, I just, and you know, I, my grandmother owned a restaurant. So I, I, I just, there's sometimes there are just unconstitutional laws, you know, or there are things that just go against good sense. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I would have a lot of trouble enforcing a lot of the things, whether it's this or the second amendment or a, a lot of things that I think that, um, we're going to see some pushback at some point because it doesn't make sense when it's, it's not for thee, but for me. Mm-hmm. And you see the you know, the governor can travel, the governor can. Yeah. Gavin Newsom's a, a big the scapegoat out there in California. Right after yeah. he dropped down the hammer on the restaurants out there, you saw his ass in a restaurant eating with his family and like 10 other people. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. And so hypocrisy, you know, unfortunately, there's uh, not a lot, not not a lot of shame anymore. They, you know, they're they're just they're they're not happy they got caught, but they continue to to be hypocrites. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I can't. I'm glad I don't have to deal deal with that right now. Yeah. Because I I would have a lot of trouble doing that. How do you feel about you know, some I, of the? I, I've, 
um, I, I don't know exactly a, a location that I'm thinking of specifically, but I, I've heard a couple different sheriff's offices have actually made public statements saying that they won't enforce some of these laws. How how would you feel if you were a a, a deputy in that in that uh, county? If your if your sheriff said, "Hey, we're not going to enforce these laws," would you feel apprehensive about that because you are you are no your job I'd, is- I'd, I'd back my sheriff. They are the final say so in 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 any county. Hmm. They're the highest law enforcement official in any county. And again, our founding fathers did that for a reason. Hmm. And uh, I would, um, you know, you, you have to look at the the law and the Constitution, which, again, most people don't. They, you know that they don't even teach constitutional law now at Harvard? <laughs> wow. Yeah, you look at their curriculum and they're they're looking at other countries and other, I mean, we even had Supreme court justices that mentioned that looking at Mm. other, other laws outside of our constitution. And uh, again, the best way to break it is to, you know, ignore it, ignore the rule of law and um, not enforce, you know, do do what they, what they were sworn to do. When you, when you take an oath is a military in, even in the military, you take to support and send, the constitution. And, um, as a deputy, I'd look at my chief or my, you know, the, the sheriff, I go, thanks. Yeah. So, um, we're, we're joined here by Dr. Denzel. Is it giants? Is that how you pronounce your last name? Yeah. Giant. Yeah. Okay. Do- Jones with an, okay. Sounds <laughs> good. We're joined here by Dr. Denzel Gimes out of St. Louis, uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Are you on, you're on the Illinois side though, right? No, I live I live in the Missouri side now. I did live on the Illinois side. Okay, worked on the Illinois side with police departments, and also on this side of the river. But um, I yeah, I'm over on the Missouri side. I left the People's Republic several years ago. <laughs> <laughs> they yeah. they doubled the they doubled the the uh, income tax. Did they really? Oh, wow. And then, but two years later, they realized we're not getting the tax revenue we need. They did it again. Oh my God. And then on top of that, we had property taxes that were just out the incredible. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you pay a thousand dollars a month if you're if you have a mortgage Mm -hmm. or all lump sum. But 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 my my um, property taxes were about 12 grand. Oh, yeah. For the privilege for the privilege, just the property tax. Yeah. On a house, you know, a year. And you just um it was also at that time that that I found out about a particular congressperson, I won't say who, that their property taxes on a bigger house with a bigger swimming pool, with an outdoor theater, with an outside kitchen, with an outside living space, um, was just in the hundreds. How bizarre. Dollars. How bizarre. Uh-huh. It's amazing how that works. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's amazing. So all, I, left, oligarchs. I left it. All right, yeah, I don't blame you one bit. We, uh, yeah. Ohio, Illinois, I mean, I feel like most of Illinois is pretty red, except for that, what, 50 square miles on the north side right next to the lake? Right. Yeah. Pretty so, much. Um, yeah, Michigan's weird because uh, the east side of the state obviously is is the reason why Michigan is blue. Um, most of the time, it's, it's very red. Um, and the west side of the state, Grand Rapids, Holland, um, even like Kalamazoo, St. Joe's, like a lot of the, mm-hmm. even the, the larger cities on the west side of the state are pretty conservative. Um, 
But anyway, again, joined by Dr. Denzel Gines, uh, one of the most interesting backgrounds I've ever heard of. I want to get into this real quick before we let you go. Um, you, after having this incredible life and, you know, li- doing just about everything that you can do, a pilot, a police officer, a doctor, a dentist, uh, an, a published author, I've got, I've got your book right here. Uh, while I can, before I'm gone, living with ALS, my story, you received a, a nasty little uh, diagnosis uh, a few years back. Tell me a little bit about what that was like. Um, well, I was having, you know, ALS usually is diagnosed through exclusion, you know, well, you don't have X, Y, Z, uh, you got, we got to go back to the other end of the alphabet. You got ALS (laughs) and, um, motor neuron disease is, is one of those things that, uh, it, it affects, um, well, I think about what, five, 6,000 people a year in the United States. It's a, it's not very many people. And so it's, it's, uh, it's pretty much the understanding of it, um, is about is similar to what it was when Lou Gehrig actually was diagnosed in, uh, I think late thirties. And, um, it, it slowly steals away, um, your ability to communicate, to speak, um, to to move it, any motor neuron, any any voluntary muscle movement that you would have, it takes that away. It eventually takes away your ability to breathe. Um, and average lifespan is about two years, two to five years, mm-hmm. with the diagnosis. And yet there are people like uh, Stephen Hawking that lived fifty years with it, even though he was paralyzed within just the first couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve Gleason of uh, team Gleason, a, f- a former uh, NFL football player, you know, they won a super bowl uh, with uh, um, the saints, Moreland saints. And, um, oh, you know, he was right. diagnosed 10, he was diagnosed 10 years ago. Yeah. I and now that. He, he is in a wheelchair and, um, uh, you know, he uses a computer to, to communicate mm-hmm. Uh, and like like uh, Stephen Hawking did, he's got voluntary movement of his eye that's remained. But uh, f- for many, um, I go into the clinics and I would see folks coming in and they walked in one year. The next year they were in a wheelchair and the next year after that they were gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's scary, you know, when you get that diagnosis. But again, we're not promised anything. Right. You yeah. know, we're not promised tomorrow. Um uh, you know, I, I had a son that was in the Marines. I uh, was in the who's who in high school, honor student, played, played guitar, even, uh, uh, you know, played professionally. He was a, a heck of a guitar player. Hmm. And, um, you know, at, at the age of 22, he's, he's disabled from uh, his tour in Iraq. He comes back hmm. here and um, ended up starting to use drugs, which he had never done prior to that and he ended up overdosing and dying oh. you know and he's one of the victims of the opioid war and he was 22 mm-hmm. so you don't have you know there's no promise of of a long life so you just have to live a life you know that outlives you now mm-hmm. today you know and so that's how i just approached that diagnosis i went oh okay I want to. I want to. Before you. Before you continue, I want to read. This is perfect timing. Um, The first page of the introduction of your book is. I read this one page and I took a picture of it and sent it to like four of my buddies. I was like, "You have to read this." (laughs) The famous quote, "You only live once," has always seemed only particularly true to me. 
My truth as live daily is we all die once unless one is a coward or a liar as they die a thousand little deaths daily. The sad truth for many is that they never fully live. Wow. That's some powerful stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, and again, that's the whole reason why I just keep doing stuff, you know, because there's, it's, life is, is short. And so you might as well enjoy it, you know, and try you know, even happiness isn't promised. We have the right to pursue it. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I just, I try to find things that make me happy, whether it's chasing my wife or, uh, <laughs> you know, getting on the motorcycles and running all over the country, which we did. I, your uncle and I went to, uh, uh Winslow, Arizona in one day Wow, from up here. And, awesome. uh, you know, a That's thousand quite, miles quite down, crazy. a thousand miles back. Well, Nice little, so, little trip. <laughs> yeah, they call they call those iron butt rides, and yeah, they're, they're a blast. I was about know? to say, can you still feel your butt after that one? Like, <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. I that's I I had the the Harley, you know, the geezer glides. I had gold wings, and now I'm on a. Uh, uh, I, I got rid of the Harley trike, and I got one of these Can Ams, which is like a Sea Doo with wheels, or a, yeah. a you know, a. a snowmobile with wheels nice and um i had it, it actually faster handles great no complaints uh, with the performance of one of those mm-hmm. i have a complaint with the dealer network but that's a whole other thing <laughs> you know they don't have they don't have any spare parts mm-hmm. or uh you know access to accessories like like harley does i mean you know they did the 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 dealerships went through the like the disney model of corporate life you know, and so when you walk into a Harley, uh, when I walked into a Harley dealer back in the early 70s, and they'd look at you like, what in the f- are you doing here? <laughs> you don't belong here. You don't yeah. have any tattoos. Get out. Yeah. And and now it's like, hey, welcome aboard. And look, we have merchandise and shirts and hats and, <laughs> and bikes, too. You know? Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, and, and the other guys need to learn that, too, because it, it would help. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got any other questions? Yeah, last uh, yeah, last one. So, um, ah. so re- Regulatories is the uh, is the name of the the group that you're part of with my uncle. Um, how mm-hmm. how did you get connected to those guys? Okay, um, you know they started down in Texas in yep. 2001, and it grew across the country. And uh, the second chapter outside of texas was in southern illinois okay and uh brian bennerton was chief of police up in in uh, uh williamson illinois and was a uh um, he um mo- big motorcycle enthusiast and he started the chapter it founded the chapter up here in southern illinois um i was looking at uh writing i i rode with my my partner joe Another friend at the Marine Corps, uh, Bob Weber and 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 Kevin, uh, my part police partner Kevin White, and we would ride all over the country as a group. And and I had seen motorcycle clubs and part of the motorcycle life. My cousin was a, uh, a vice president of Banditos down in Fort Worth, and and so I knew about the clubs that side of it, and I'd seen some police clubs but they were pretty much not really riding they they didn't really get out and travel and and um i saw a three-piece patch one day a picture of regulatory's patch and i go well that that looks like a traditional you know like an outlaw almost it's a three-piece patch um 
and but it's, it's, it says LE on there. So I contacted him. Mm-hmm. I just said, I'm going to, I hunted him down. He said, who are you? <laughs> and, um, after, after a long talk with uh, Brian Bennett and I realized, okay, I want to ride with you guys. That's awesome. And so I, you know, made the introductions, wrote, wrote over with them. And then I, you know, got a hold of Bob and Kevin said, Hey guys, we got to join this. And, uh, um, and that's what we did. That's awesome. Yeah. And we've had since then, you know, it's been, we go all over the country down to Florida, Texas, New Orleans, Louisiana, Arizona, I mean, everywhere where we, you know, trying to to actually start up a chapter, um, one end of the state in Missouri and another one down in, in New Mexico, uh, with one of the sheriffs down there. And, um, it's just a blast. I, I awesome. love to ride um, and share experiences with former military people. You know, I, I was a tooth fairy. And, you know, and, and I, I thought when I was in the Navy, the only reason they have an aircraft carrier is to bring the patients flying in here to me. Oh, uh, right. You know, the whole, <laughs> you know. Awesome. and I've got friends, but I have actually personal friends that are, that are on the SEAL teams and in and, and, and Delta Force. And um, I got, you know, when I first got on Facebook, one of my friends that, uh, that um, was one of the combat swimmer instructors, Halo instructors, former Green Beret, and he says, "Where's your trident?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I've got these friends that are that are seals, and I said, "Well, I recommend like four other out of five dentists. I recommend trident gum." Nah. <laughs> that, they they laugh, uh. but I, I I got involved with the, that community. Um, again, by happenstance, I was a competitive shooter as a, you know, martial artist. And, um, you just meet these guys and some of them were friendly, you know, they, they what's the staff officer doing out here on the weapons range. <laughs> and then I, you know, I was able to, you know, show them why I was there and they said, you can come back anytime you want. And you know, and that those friendships evolved, you yeah. know, and, and that's the greatest part about the military is that there's such everybody's a camaraderie. There. There's all such have a brotherhood. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's awesome. It's a blast. Now you should, this is a shameless self-promotion. Absolutely. There's a second book out. Ooh, tell me about it's it. It's called appointment. It's called appointment with karma. Okay. Hmm. And, and it's based on a lot of true stories. Yeah, we'll put that but Amazon. We'll put that Amazon link in the in the description. Of oh this. yeah, Appointment with Karma. Is, is, is my first novel. Okay, and it's um, about what you know the warriors ethos. You know, if you mess with me, I'm going to leave it to karma. Mm-hmm. But if yep. you hurt my family, I am your karma. Mm, and it. that's what it's about. It's about a, a a surgeon here in St. Louis who's a police officer. Who becomes the vic? Not him, but someone he knows becomes a victim of a pretty bad crime, and just through some coincidences and luck and some really hard detective work, he's able to identify the perpetrator, and then he has to wrestle with his conscience. What do you do mm-hmm. with with the knowledge? And um, so that's what it's about. That's awesome. That sounds that sounds similar, um, not not very similar, but there's there's some similarities between one of my favorite movies, the the Boondock Saints. I don't know if you've seen that. That's a little bit older, but yeah, uh, oh one, yeah, that's one of my favorite. Movies Familiar that time. one. I'm yeah. thinking this is more like Dexter meets Death Wish. Okay, I like it. 
That's awesome. Yeah, that's a good combination it's, it's, right it's, there. So it was actually, it was fun. Like, and uh, a lot of my friends are all going, "Oh, oh okay," because I, I use the same names, first names, but I changed all the last names. Oh, so, so a lot of my a lot of my friends are in it. So there's some Easter eggs that your friends can go in and re- that's that's so cool. I love oh, that. Yeah. So last last couple questions for you before before we get okay. off the phone with you. We're here with uh, Dr. Denzel Gines, uh, published author, did about nine other things. Pretty cool. Uh, link in the description to his uh, his newest book uh, called An Appointment with Karma. Um, so you were uh, so uh, back in 2015. I'm old enough to remember that there was a little um, there was a little bit of a. Uh, um, a riot that went on in one of the uh, neighborhoods down in St. Louis. Were you boots on the ground for Ferguson back in 2015, or were you kind of at a... Well, it was 2014 when the shooting occurred. Yes, that's what I meant. And yep. our department, our department lending lending help, um, I did not have to go boots on the ground because I was already having, I was already diagnosed with ALS. Gotcha, okay. And, and so, um, you know, I, w- I was there just to, I did some weapons checks for some guys, did some other stuff because I was one of the firearms instructor for our academy mm-hmm. and for our departments. And, um, and that goes all the way back to doing that stuff back in the early eighties with, um, intelligence union here in St. Louis. But yeah, we, um, you know, we saw it, it just, we saw the birth of black lives matter then mm-hmm. through an open lie that was told about a police officer that was doing his job he was seriously injured when he was, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things that um, there's a narrative that's out there. Police are bad. Police are racists. Police, and it's just not true. Mm-hmm. And the numbers, just the sheer numbers should be enough to show people that, you know, anybody that's thinking that, wait a minute, you know, the majority of cops are really, you know, they're not, they're doing a hard job mm-hmm. and they do it with pride and with, with, with care. There are examples of people that get hurt, but when you look at 1.5 billion interactions in a given time frame, a couple of years, mm-hmm. 1.5 billion interactions of police officers to, to minorities, mm-hmm. that's traffic stops, well checks, um, um, you name it, just interactions. And you get 95 unarmed minority men that are or, and women that are killed by police officers. And you got to remember about a hundred, you know, a hundred officers that are killed with many times are killed by unarmed mm-hmm. people. Yeah. So let's, you know, not all 95 people that were killed by police in that given time period were innocent. Mm-hmm. Not all 95 people, uh, you know, it, it's how do you, I, I mean, it's one of those things where you have to be there and look and read these reports. And we have people, you know, in, in 95 people out of 1.5 billion, mm-hmm. but at the same time, our minority communities, like in the black community, we have 44,000 people killed in that same time period by other minorities, mm-hmm. you know, black on black crime. And we can't talk about that. Mm-hmm. And we have to be able to, to, to differentiate between criminal behavior and and wanton racism, open racism, which it's just, I've never met a cop that says, boy, I sure hope I get to go out and hurt somebody today. Right. That's not why you signed up for that job. 
this no. It, no. If, if you if we see somebody like that, if we even hear about that, those are the people we flag. Get them out of this profession for sure. Mm-hmm. We don't want people yeah. like that. Open racists. I mean, it's I know not, the stereotypes of the guys. That's not a profession yeah, the guys that you want to be south in. South back in the '60s, in that kind of stuff that that occurred. Um, uh, but it's not. It's today's world. No, mm-hmm. it's it. We we stamp that out. I mean, racism was on its way out in the in, in early 2000s up to about 2008, and then all of a sudden it made a resurgence. Right. Or at least the complaint of it did. Do you think it had anything to do with our uh, presidential administration from 2008 to 2016? Yeah, I do believe it. I think that it was it was ramped up. That that there was a narrative created that um, you know all police or those police acted stupidly, and in little things like those comments that were made when that was not actually the facts. Mm -hmm. You know, and that when when the president made that and they had the beer summit because. Because a a, a um, professor was arrested in his own home. Well, you know, if you look at the facts of that, the police are called to investigate a break-in. You find a guy there. Now, he can say, I own the house. You know, I mean, if I was a burglar I, and the police showed up, hey, what are you doing in my house? I might, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's what happened. And because he then refused to identify himself, because he, you know, he wouldn't cooperate with the police, he got arrested. Mm-hmm. Now it doesn't mean that you know the p- police were just trying to do their job and investigate why you know, hey, your burglar alarm went off. Mm-hmm. Who are mm-hmm. you? Yeah, they didn't have any clue who was there. Yeah, and yeah, when they show up to an address, that, it doesn't it doesn't say what race owns the the property. Right. Like, if everybody would step back and be courteous, yeah, and respectful of each other, yeah. Many times this stuff wouldn't happen. For sure. You know, but because I, it, but because the narrative out there has been so beat down that all of these <laughs> police officers are, are racist, then anytime you have an uh, something that could be a simple mistake or a simple misunderstanding gets blown way out of context and and sometimes unfortunately in police circumstances in in, in interactions with people, um, misunderstandings can turn violent pretty quick, especially if somebody and, if one of the parties isn't isn't cooperative. <laughs> Right. We allude earlier to the, you know, rights and responsibilities. And there's many people, many people, unfortunately, think they're lawyers and you don't adjudicate a, a, a case in the street. Mm-hmm. If you've got a problem, if they've done a procedural error and the police have made a mistake. Yes. You'll get your day in court. Mm-hmm. But you can't fight them in the street. Right. And and here's and, the thing. Um, if you get a good lawyer and there is a cop that is in the wrong, you'll probably get a pretty decent paycheck. Like, yeah. <laughs> like you yeah. might like if there's genu- a genuine cir- circumstance where a police officer and by the way, all of these administrations and in, in, um, justice departments and stuff, they're so concerned about the the, pub- the negative blowback they could get from a situation like this. They'll probably just, you know, hey, you know, here you go. Here's a big fat check. Let's let's <laughs> and even if, yeah. and even if you aren't wrong or and even if the police aren't wrong. You might get a big check, right? Anyway. Yeah, for sure. So, or your family, and that's what's happened in many cases. Yeah, and it's a shame yeah. because races. I'm a minority. I mean, I'm Asian, mm-hmm. so you know, I, I'm I'm used to when I grew up. Um, there were there there was a 
a form of racism against especially Japanese because of sure. the end of World War II. Back in the 40s, we had many yeah. people that lived through the horrors of that. Yeah. And so I can understand from here, I can understand mm-hmm. that. Maybe it, it, when I was younger, I, I had a chip on my shoulder. I'll show you. You know, and I'll yeah. I'll go to school. And I'll be more successful. And I'll show you, but yeah, maybe that was a, a motivator. But um, I can understand being a minority, and of course, you know, I'll have people say, "Well, you know, you're you're not dark enough." I've had people say that. Oh, oh and I go, oh, "Really? Oh, you know, okay." Should, should I go? So, you know, and every, so we all. Like, have, what do you want me to do? Our, <laughs> we all have our chip. Oh, you know, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. If I if I used to go to Texas when I was a kid to hang out with my uh, family members, I'd spend a month down there. I'd look uh, pretty Hispanic after spending a month in the Texas heat in the summertime. Like, I, <laughs> yeah, I was probably darker than you were at that point. <laughs> it, it's and I'll tell you what the heat. Yeah, you. Oh, we we were there in in August, and I you know I thought we were. I had to check the address several times. Go, we haven't died and gone to hell, have we? It's <laughs> uh, yeah, that's Texas for you. Oh my goodness, I I never. I mean, that was hot, and I just mm-hmm. don't. I it was just conditioned too. I don't regulate my temperature very well. Yeah, and so it really got to. It used to be hot, cold. Oh, I'll I'll stay outside all day. Yeah, and now it's like you know I want to be in the air conditioner. I want with the heater, the furnace on now. Yeah, but. Yeah, that's that's one of the unfortunate things about getting older or with having something like this. Yeah. Maintain your health. All I can tell you guys, maintain your health. Absolutely. Uh, if you don't diet, you don't exercise, I mean, what's going to happen is your health, you, you'll hit a magic number. Yeah. It can be 25 for some people. For other people, it's 40. But your metabolism slows, your ability to heal slows, mm-hmm. your immune system slows down. And you want to make up that difference, and it's diet and exercise. Mm-hmm. And that's been a, a clear cut winner for me. My, my physicians will say that too, is, is that, you know, the training I did for 45 years, I, I ran three times a week. I lifted weights four days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I was organic most of the time. Um, I had a, you know, unfortunately got a gene defit, you know, gene mutation and, um, and it's exposure to certain things, you know, radiation, some other things that uh, create, that potential and that's what happened with me mm-hmm. and so i've got this but it's doing the other stuff that has reduced the oxidative stress and the other things that age me yeah and and so i've been i've been i've been real lucky i mean this is you know keep it i'm still walking you know and in mm-hmm. and, and it's five years past the diagnosis of als wow and that's and impressive more that than 20 years since the sur- first symptoms and I'm wow. still walking. Wow. So, you know, um, there's, there, you really do, it's a machine mm-hmm. and you own it. And if you, you know, we don't, we're not handed an owner's manual, right? but if you, you, there, there are outlets or there or, or resources that you can look up online that can show you how to reduce those levels of stress, how to re, how, you can reverse atherosclerotic plaque in the heart. We've known that for over 20 years now. Um, Dean Ornish published um, work in the New, um, not New England Journal, but the uh, Journal of American Medical Association, JAMA, back in '97, showing that you could actually reverse the plaque in a heart that plugs things up. You know that you, it's like the scale inside a pipe, mm-hmm. and so the lumen, the, the the actual blood vessels get thinner and thinner, and blood can't get through, mm-hmm. and then you end up with a either a clot or 
uh, an ischemic event, a heart and damage, a heart attack. Well, back then they were already showing you can reverse these plaques. You can actually, you know, reverse the aging process by a lot with just a, a strict diet. But, the, you know, people don't want to hear about diet. Same with diabetes. I've got diabetes patients that were on insulin. They were on, on, on oral meds mm-hmm. and are off their meds completely just by changing their diet. No kidding. Mm-hmm. They're no longer diabetic That's or wild. hypertensive. Like, are you talking like type 1 diabetic or type 2? No, no. Type 1 diabetes is a different different story. That's, okay. That's, that's an autoimmune, but type 2 diabetes, okay. adult onset. Okay. Same with uh, hypertension. Mm-hmm. You know, the most effective blood pressure medicine works about 38% of the time. So most of the time, if you come into your, you go to your primary care doctor and they're overworked and they're seeing all the patients, and you come in and he's got a minute and you go, oh, your, your blood pressure's up. Here's a beta blocker mm-hmm. or an alpha blocker or a calcium channel blocker or an ACE inhibitor or a water pill. But one way or another, we're going to give you this pill that's going to lower your blood pressure. Now, it will slow your metabolism down. Most of them do. They'll slow your metabolism down. You'll gain a little weight. Well, if you gain a little weight, your blood pressure is going to go up. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I get another pill. And then leave you at, give you a, um, more susceptible to heart disease and all sorts it's, of those. And the more, the more we get you on more, more and more pills, Mm-hmm. And all those pills do is treat the symptoms. They don't get at the cause. Do you think that's intentional? Yet, there's a thing. Uh, I'd hate to think it's intentional. I think it's the way the the allopathic model of medicine is is geared towards pharmacologic intervention. Yeah. In other words, you know, we answer the big pharma. We give here's here's your pill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And getting back to that, okay, the dash diet works eighty eight percent of the time to reduce blood pressure to normal within two weeks. And it's a diet. And, and when styles wrote that diet, that's actually a compromise on, on other work that showed that you could lower it even further with even a stricter diet. And then that in turn reverses um, uh, cholesterol numbers and your chances of diabetes. And it's um, pretty amazing, but you know, about half of the dollars they're spent on healthcare Right now, or we'll look closer to 70% of the dollars they spent on healthcare are spent on lifestyle preventable illness. Interesting. Mm. Okay. So you're saying wow. if we cut half, back on the McDonald's as a, as a society, we would probably cut uh-huh. our healthcare costs in half. Yeah, we don't have a healthcare crisis. We have a health crisis in America. Mm. We have, a, we have two-thirds of the, of the patient population now o- overweight. Mm-hmm. A, over a third is obese. Yeah. You want to and get you the, can, this is, can, I got something to tell you. This is a little bit more personal, but my wife just got diagnosed with celiac and um, she's had symptoms for years and has never had a positive test for that before. So we're now like I'm I've, I'm like the the metabolism that everybody hates for. I could eat three cheeseburgers and, and lose five pounds tomorrow like that. I've just I've it's slowly starting to catch up with me, but I've always had that. Um, but now more so than ever, I'm starting to actually listen to what my body is telling me and pay attention to what I'm putting in. Um, and at least when I'm home, not putting any gluten in my body and that alone, I just feel like I have so much more energy. Um, do you think that there might be a lack of education out there about all this stuff? Or do you think there might, there's a a tremendous lack of education when it comes to nutrition in, in, in the medical community? Yeah. They, 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 they give it lip service. Uh, Tufts, I think, has the longest or the largest amount of nutritional education in 
me- medical school. Yeah. And it's like maybe seven or eight hours. Wow. That's it. Out of out of a twenty seven hundred hours yeah. of education to get an MD, and you get a handful of hours that are spent on nutrition. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the diet, the the dietitians, the nutritionists, their information is coming from the food producers and big pharma. Yeah. And that's why I think know, the food pyramid is. Excuse my French, but the food pyramid's a crock of shit. It is. Yeah. yeah. It truly is. It's because it's it's guided by, again. The government body that's that's funding the food growers or the food producers in these case dairy and and poultry and pork and beef and, and that's a that's a we could get into that for hours on its effect on health as far as diet goes and I, like I said seventy percent of our healthcare dollars are spent on lifestyle preventable illnesses and more than half of the medicines that are being prescribed today are being prescribed to get rid of the side effects of the other half of the medicine that people take. Interesting. Wow. And you don't want to get cycle. to the point where you're taking all these meds. It's your diet and your exercise. And I, I could give you a couple sources that are pretty good at getting a basic education on what's going on. Okay. And that is what the, the documentary, What the Health. Okay. The documentary, Forks Over Knives. And a super book by a guy named Michael Greger, who was uh, head of medical research at, oh gosh, I don't want to, it might have been Cornell, it could have been Columbia, I can't remember exactly. But he was a, he's a physician, and he wrote the book, How Not to Die. And those are three great sources of basic information on health and nutrition, and their, the, the, the tie-in between your diet and your overall health and your risks of developing heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, and cancer. Mm -hmm. And if you look at those, and you want to minimize your risks, besides doing the exercise, because a lot of guys are great at exercising. Um, Well, (laughs) that's another one. I shouldn't say a lot of guys, because I know a lot of guys are overweight. But if if you're doing the exercise, and you also then combine it with the proper diet, you're going to live your best life. I mean, you, you know, uh, you take some bodybuilders are sh- tremendously strong. They have diets that aren't exactly super healthy, and they live to life expectancy. You take mm-hmm. other people that have a fairly good diet, a healthy diet, more, mostly plant-based, but they don't exercise at all, and they live to about life expectancy. Mm-hmm. It's when you put it all together that you see these guys that are in their 80s and their 90s, and they're still functioning at a high level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're not you're not seeing them age like everybody else just because nine out of 10 people get hypertension or two thirds of the population gets to be overweight. That's not normal. It's Mm -hmm. usual. It's like Mm -hmm. cavities and gum disease. You know, nine out of 10 cavities and gum disease and it's the most preventable condition there is. Mm -hmm. It's 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 just usual that so many people get. It's not normal. Yeah. Normal is being healthy. Mm. And, you know, the sicker the American public gets in America, the sicker the public gets, the wider the lab parameters have gotten for measuring cholesterol. Mm. It used to be your cholesterol was in a danger zone. We worried about it when it was over 150. Mm. Now it's 200. It's things like that. Wow. So they're moving the goalposts. Exactly. Okay. And you want to be at the low end of most of those. You want to be, you know, your cholesterol, you don't want it to be at that high end of what's considered normal. You want it in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want your, you know, your triglycerides the same way, and every in your blood sugar, and 
you don't want to get and it doesn't have to get high if you're doing your part mm-hmm. which is not eating the things that are you know that are that are stressing that create oxidative stress that create that raise your crp that do do the things that that wear your body out before it's ready mm-hmm. i always ask the patients you know where are you going to live when you wear this thing out by the way and they'd look at me <laughs> and unfortunately though we have a lot of folks that also they no matter what you tell them you know it's like some people can't take a telling you could you know i i, I had a sign in my office said well your prognosis is going to depend on which one of us is going to be the doctor today mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, I I hear what you're saying, Doctor Denzel, but I really love Kentucky Fried Chicken, and uh, I ain't gonna change that. <laughs> why? I loved it too. I mean, it's it's one of those things that, oh, I, you know, it's it's one of those things that if you really, really do the strict strict diet, you you can you can lower those numbers to normal. Yeah. And if you're eating 21 meals a week, and you're healthy. You don't have hypertension, you don't have diabetes, and you're not overweight. Mm-hmm. That one meal a week that you splurge and do something and eat something like that's not really going to hurt you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's not. But you can't do it in the so-called parentheses of moderation. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, you know, I'm only smoking <laughs> two cigarettes a day. You know what I mean? I'm only yeah. you know, everything in moderation it, except for moderation. <laughs> yeah, it's like how do you? Yeah. Uh, I, I heard one guy say that one time, that when, well, what if I switch from this to that? The other guy, and, and, and the doctor looked at him and said, well, yeah. that's your choice. What if go I go from Marlboro Reds to Marlboro Lights? Yeah. Light, it'll be yeah. better, right? <laughs> right. It's like, again, it's that choice. Do you want to yeah. shoot yourself or hang yourself? Right. All right, doctor, yeah. we can't thank you enough. One last question for you before we we get off here. Uh, what's what's next? What's on the horizon for doctor? You seem like you're you're very forward thinking and um, um, always looking well, forward to something. Well, we're planning we're planning on going to Winter Nationals and and celebrating Christmas and New Year's. Awesome. <laughs> Doing the Winter Nationals with the regulatories down in Bandera, Texas. Cool. Um, uh, the book appointment with Karma ends at one point, and the new book uh, starts. Before that ending, you know, yeah, I, I, you know, fill in some more details ah, at the end, I love and, it. and it keeps going. Yeah, basically, basically, the the, the three friends. It's kind of f- funny, but well, I, you know, what is that? That old story about uh, how do you keep a secret if you're three people? Will you shoot two of them? So I can't, <laughs> I can't, I'm not going to give the secret away, but it's um, yeah. The, the, there's another one on the way. That's kind of fun. Yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, Dr. Denzel, can't thank you enough. Uh, Joe, you got anything else? No, I think that'll do it for me. Okay. I'm excited to read your book. Yeah, I'd love to ask you a couple questions about COVID, but ironically, my episode coming out tomorrow, I actually I interviewed a, uh, a doctor in St. Louis, ironically, um, with an episode that is going to be coming out tomorrow, Dr. Justin Kelly. Awesome. And we're, the whole thing is about his take on COVID-19, and we went through some C- CDC statistics and all that good stuff. Um, and kind I think of, I think I got a, a included a short chapter on COVID in, in the uh, uh, first book. You did, and your perspective on that was yeah. incredibly interesting. So maybe uh, maybe <laughs> in the next couple months, hey Biden it, Biden gets in office. Maybe all this COVID stuff goes away. We're not quite sure yet. Maybe <laughs> it gets worse. I don't know, but um, but yeah, maybe we'll have you on in a couple months, and we could talk a little bit more about uh, all the craziness going on in the world. So. Sure, uh, love to. Dr. Denzel, can't thank you enough, and uh, have a great night. 
You too. And thank you very much, guys. All right. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. All right. Yep, go ahead and hang that up. All right. If you're still tuning in to us, thank you so much. Joe, This was I think this was a smashing success, the first uh, the live episode. Are we still live? You haven't yeah, shut it off yet? Live. Okay, cool. Do you have any, uh, any closing thoughts, anything to wrap it up? It's, it's crazy uh, what Dr. Denzel has done. And, uh, yeah, I think what I said earlier, just I can't wait to read his book. And uh, and then the second one, yeah, because that man has has lived quite a life. And it was, you were saying that you you sent that that original quote on the first page to a few people, and I was of the lucky few. And even even the second time hearing it, that just that gives me chills hearing the way that someone can use such powerful words that are simple but just uh, kind of hit you to your core. Uh, we want to invite you to like, share, and subscribe on the YouTube channel. We greatly appreciate that. Um, and that's all I got for tonight. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great night. Have Merry a great Christmas. night, guys.